0: Good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you here. It's so great to worship the Lord together. There's something about agreement as a community about the things of God and uh, Johnny's prayer. We need to be in agreement in what we're praying for this school, for the families that are here. This is an incredible ministry opportunity for us just praying for this place. So as you know, um, if you've been here the past month or so, we've been in the book of Zechariah. What an amazing book this is. And uh, Zechariah lived in the time, uh, we call it the post-exilic time, which is a fancy word for saying that after the Israelites were exiled from their country, after 70 years, they came back. And I want you to imagine something, okay? Most of us have been to downtown Lynchburg, right? You know what it looks like. Imagine that in the 1950s, it was abandoned, completely abandoned. And you're part of a group coming back in the 2020s to restart, to rebuild. Can you imagine what it would look like, what it would be like? And it was worse for the Israelites because It wasn't just abandoned, Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Jerusalem, tore it down, burned it with fire. And so I think we need to understand psychologically what these returning Jews were facing. A small number, and here they are, and there's this gigantic mess. And they're supposed to live there. And how overwhelming would that feel? Can you feel that a little bit? They needed encouragement. And so we've been using these two words, criticize and energize. They come from a guy named Walter Brueggemann, a theologian. I think he he really has some good things to say about the prophets. And the idea of criticize, the prophetic ministry criticizing, is that the prophet comes up against a wrong way of thinking. We're going to see that today. But also energizing, these people needed hope They needed encouragement. Have you ever felt that way? They sure did. And so these two things, the the criticizing and the energizing, are sort of in a balance. What was God's number one concern about the people returning and restarting and everything coming, uh, coming up again in Jerusalem? Let's not duplicate the mistakes of the past. And so this criticism, we're going to find it in chapter seven. It's very radical. It exposes the root problem of the previous generation. We're going to see that. And then in chapter eight, chapter eight is this expansive, beautiful statement about what God wants to do, the energizing of what his plans are for the people. So that's kind of where we're going today. And uh, we sang today. Our our God is good. The intentions of God for you, for me, are always good. Even in the criticizing part, it's for our good. So let's uh, pray, and then we'll start in Zechariah 7. Lord, we once again recognize that your Holy Spirit is the one who reveals truth, who is able to transform us through our time spent with you, our time spent in the word, our time spent together as a community. We ask for that transformation in each of our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Zechariah chapter seven, starting in verse two. Now the town of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regemelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belonged to the house of the Lord of hosts, and to the prophets. So they're coming to the priests and the prophets saying, shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? What sort of a question is that? (laughs) Okay. So Bethel was a town not too far from Jerusalem. They sent this delegation, these two leaders, and then a, a group with them to talk to the spiritual leaders of Israel, to talk to the priests and the prophets So they were coming to seek the favor of the Lord. They were coming, showing submission to the spiritual leaders. And they have a question. What does that mean? Weeping and abstaining in the fifth month. Well, if you look at 2 Kings chapter 25, it tells us that in the fifth month, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, utterly destroyed Solomon's temple. That was the month when it happened. And so the Jewish people... Uh, were, had this tradition that developed where they would weep and they would fast for that entire month because of that. And they had other traditions like that that we'll see as we go along here. And so these men are coming and they're asking, a, I think, a pretty logical question of these leaders. The temple is out, is being rebuilt. Remember? That was the role, was the first priority that uh, Haggai the prophet told them, most, oh, so you need to rebuild the temple. So the temple is being rebuilt. And these people are wondering, okay, if the new temple is being rebuilt, should I still weep and fast and mourn over the destruction of the old one? It's a good question, honest question. Here's the answer, the initial answer. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, say to all the people of the land, and to the priests. So notice, this answer is to everybody, not just to the men from Bethel, but everybody including the priests. When you fasted and mourned in the 5th and 7th months these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves and do you not drink for yourselves? Wow. You're fasting, you're mourning in the fifth month, you're weeping, but who is it for? Was it really for me? Talk about a searching question. And this is what the the gift of prophecy does. It gets right to the motives of why we do what we're doing. And honestly, when you first read this, it sounds like kind of a severe reply, doesn't it? A little bit. These guys are coming with an honest question. And then God says, Was it really for me that you were doing this in the first place? And what we're gonna see unfold is the reason for God's prophetic criticism through zechariah that there's a difference between mourning over consequences and mourning over the root cause. So valuable for us to understand that in our lives. So in order to get to that, God takes them back. He takes them back to uh, the previous generation and reminds this generation of the exiles what he told the previous generation. So here we go. Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous along with its cities around it? So he's saying, okay, remember back when, more than 70 years ago, Jerusalem was in pro- it was prosperous, it was inhabited. What did I tell those people during that day? And so, starting at verse 9, this is what he said to them. Thus has the Lord of hosts said Dispense true justice, and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow and the orphan, the stranger and the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. God's saying, Remember, this was the message that I gave to the previous generation. Practice kindness and compassion and justice. I think it was about a year ago that Mark Fesmeyer gave us the series on the Ten Commandments. Do you remember that? Do you remember what he said? The Ten Commandments, the law, is like a boundary fence. And it is a boundary fence surrounding the good life. It isn't the good life in and of itself, it's just a boundary fence. That's true. This statement is the good life. It's what's supposed to be inside of the boundary of the law. Kindness, compassion, justice, caring for the weak. This is the true heart of God. This is what God wants for his people. This is what he wanted for Israel. Sometimes we get this really bad idea about the Old Testament God having a bad attitude or being just full of wrath and punishment. No, this is what he wanted. This was the message that he gave to the people. And how did the previous generation respond? You can read the book of Jeremiah and see a pretty good idea of how they responded. But this is what Zechariah says. They refused to pay attention, turned a stubborn shoulder, stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint so they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by, by his spirit, that's important, through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. So do we see what's happening here? Jeremiah wrote that the sins of Judah were engraved on their hearts with an iron stylus that had a diamond tip. What was the result in the culture? Again, read the book of Jeremiah. Evil behavior, bloodshed, arrogance, oppression, What were the consequences? Well, exile, the destruction of Jerusalem. What is God saying here? Why was there a criticism of these guys that came with an honest question? God is saying, let's not mourn over consequences. If we're going to mourn over anything, let's mourn over the root cause, the root behavior. Is there anybody that we can think of that did that? Well, last week I talked about Daniel. What, what, a, what a person Daniel was. What an incredible individual. He was in Babylon. He had a high-ranking job in the government in Babylon, but he was a humble godly man. And you know what happened to Daniel? He happened to be reading the book of Jeremiah. So Daniel was reading the scriptures and he was on Jeremiah and he became so upset that he mourned and he fasted for three weeks. And this was just, you you go to Daniel nine and read this entire prayer. I wish we had time to go through this whole thing. But this is an example of mourning and weeping over the root cause. Daniel saw that. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. Notice the we. Daniel doesn't say those guys. We've committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Daniel is mourning over the root problem. Daniel understood, and more importantly, he felt how this evil behavior, this violence, this taking advantage of one another, how this damaged the relationship with God as well as between the people. And so it's so important for us as believers in Jesus to understand that it's possible for religious tradition to exist in our lives without a personal connection with the Lord. Oh, we can certainly do that. In the case of the Israelites, the Jews, they're mourning over the destruction of the temple. That could be mourning over a cultural thing, a historical thing, a thing of national pride. We lost the temple. That was our great source of pride. That's different from lamenting the broken relationship with the Lord. I think this word is pretty powerful for any generation of people following the Lord. Was it actually for me? That's what God asked. This stuff that you're doing, was it actually for me? And sometimes we can get involved in different things serving the Lord and we can lose touch with that love relationship with him. I remember this happening to me. I was in college. I had become a believer at around age 17. And the only thing I can tell you is the Lord showed his love to me in a way that completely blew me away. And I said, okay, I'm I'm in. This is it for me. I'm following you. And when I I went to a state university, when I got there, the first thing was, okay, I need to find some believers here somewhere. I can't do this by myself. And so I got involved in a, in, a, in a campus ministry and it was a very energetic activist kind of ministry. And I fit right in and I, and I got on a roll and it was some amazing training, discipleship and evangelism and all these different things. But it, I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like getting involved in a big machine or something. And as you grow, you know, you end up with more and more stuff to do. And I was busy summers and during the, during the school year. And I remember... The fourth year, I was going to some event and I stopped and it was like I hit a wall. I said, I don't really even know why I'm doing this. (laughs) I don't know why I'm doing it. I I had started with this love relationship with Jesus and somewhere along the way and all the serving and the running and the doing and the discipling and all the stuff I was learning, I had lost track of that. Was it actually for me, Jim? These things you're doing. And so it's so important for us to understand that the engine of your life has to be this love relationship with Jesus. If you're serving outside of that, you're gonna hit a wall. So that's the criticism. Now let's get to chapter eight. The energizing. This is so amazing, so beautiful. This energizing happens when we respond well to, to the searching criticism of the spirit. And it's not like a negative criticism. It's just like, if you go to the hospital with a wound, you don't want them to just stitch it up. You're gonna lose your arm. They've got to get in there and clean it out. And it's not easy to watch or to experience, but it's gotta be a, a, a tough cleaning of that area before it's stitched. So this energizing begins. The word of the Lord of hosts came saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with a great wrath, I'm jealous for her. This is not jealousy as we think. Donnie's been talking about this a couple of times. It's not jealousy like envy. God, What is God gonna envy somebody for? He, he's the creator. This is jealousy in the sense of fiercely protective, right? Think about your own family. Think about something or someone threatening your loved ones. Are you going to be like, oh, yeah, you know, that's kind of unfortunate. <laughs> no, you are going to be fiercely protective. Even if you're a laid back person, there's going to be a fierce lion that comes out of you. And this is what God is saying. He treasures his people and he is fiercely protective of them. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. The mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. So he begins speaking about the future, speaking about things that are gonna happen uh, with with what he's going to do. And it's interesting, part of what we need to understand in, in, in reading the prophets is that sometimes when they're speaking, there's a bunch of different timelines going on. Sometimes in a single statement, there'll be multiple timelines that are referred to. Okay, so in this case, for example, the Lord says, I'll return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Well, there's probably four different timelines that that could potentially refer to. First of all, I will return to Zion now to help you rebuild the temple. Remember the promise when we were studying the book of Haggai? God said, I will be with you in this rebuilding, my presence will be with you. So there's a sense of God's presence in the now for the people that were rebuilding the temple. And then in the near future, let's say the temple is rebuilt. Well, the temple is where God's presence dwells. Jesus called it my father's house. This is the same temple. The temple they're building is the same one that Jesus was in, right? He said, it's my father's house. And then the distant future, 500 years later, who comes into the temple but Jesus himself? God made flesh coming into the temple, teaching, bringing God's presence to his people. And then read the book of Revelation. At the end time, there is a new Jerusalem coming out of the sky. And the presence of God is in that city like a, it doesn't need any light because of God's presence. So what I'm trying to say is that there's multiple timelines that happen in the prophetic books. And we have to kind of realize that it isn't cut and dried about which timeline is being talked about. Sometimes it's, it's more like art. Think of it like art, a painting. So here in chapter eight, I'm gonna just give us a couple more examples of the kind of hope, the kind of energizing that God is promising these people and also us because some of it applies to the future. So in verse 9 of chapter 8, he encourages them in the now. Okay? He says, "Let your hands be strong, you who are listening in these days to these words to the end that the temple might be built." So so God is giving a word of encouragement and and strengthening to them now. Build the temple. I'm with you. And then in verse 12, there's uh, an encouragement about the near future. Remember, they're looking around at desolation. They're not looking around in like some pastoral country scene with a bunch of farms and things. They're looking at desolation. And in verse 12, God says, for there will be peace for the seed. What a beautiful expression. There'll be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce. So God is painting a picture for the sort of near future that, hey, this land is gonna come back to life. You're gonna have produce again. You're gonna have stuff growing. It's gonna come back to life. And then in verse 23, a statement of hope and encouragement about the someday. Thus says the Lord of hosts, and I love this verse. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. 10 men from nations outside of Israel grasping the garment of a Jew because God, let me go with you. I think in some senses, it points to us. You know, I, I, I look around this room and think about the nations that are represented here. I don't know what your ancestry is or where you're from. I mean, my family all came from Sweden. But I mean, all the nations that are represented here, and if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know what you've done? You have grasped the garment of a Jew. And you have said, I wanna go with you. You know, to me, uh, it's hard sometimes for us to correctly describe what faith in Jesus is. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that it's just agreeing with him. Oh, I agree with everything. I agree with all of Jesus' teachings. I, you know, I agree, I agree, but I have my own agenda. And so Jesus, I'm gonna be going on my agenda, but you know what? Along the way, I'm gonna be agreeing with you about everything. That's different from grasping his garment and saying, I'm going with you. I don't care where you go. My agenda is gone. I don't have one because I want to be with you. It's like the book of Ruth, where she goes to her mother-in-law and says, where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'm with you. That's it. And I think this is such a, a good metaphor for what it really means to follow Jesus. And sometimes people have been around church forever and they hear about all my life. Other people say my life was transformed by Jesus. I'm being changed. And they say, well, that hasn't happened to me what's up? You know, I I agree with everything. I'm here. I'm showing up. I think this may be what's at the heart, at the root of it. It isn't just agreement. It's laying hold of him and saying, where you go, I'm going to go. And sometimes he brings us around to where we recapture the agenda that we had at the beginning, but sometimes not. But it doesn't matter. We have to let go in order to grasp onto him. So anyway, I I just love that metaphor. And so this is a great encouragement that God is going to use the Jewish people to bless the nations, the promise of Abraham. And here it is, it's happening today. So finally, the last bit is we have an unanswered question, right? At the beginning of this, teaching. Do you remember what the question was? These men are coming and saying, hey, am I supposed to keep fasting in the fifth month or not? And it took two chapters to answer the question. Sometimes the answer is longer than the question, but God answers the question. And I think this answer is incredibly powerful and beautiful. So in verse 19 of chapter eight, thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the 4th, the fast of the 5th, the fast of the 7th, and the fast of the 10th months will become joy, gladness, cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. And then this exhortation, so love, truth, and peace. You say, wait a minute, four months of mourning? Yes, yes. They had a mourning month for just about everything. There was one for the destruction of the temple. There was one for the month that the wall of Jerusalem fell down. There was another one for the murder of the, when when the last little group of Israelites was left behind, they had a leader who, who was assassinated. He had been appointed by Nebuchadnezzar and he was assassinated. And they were afraid, the last little remnant, and they fled to Egypt. So everybody was gone. So that was a month of mourning. And then another one was the siege of Jerusalem. So th- that's a lot of mourning, right? Year after year, ah, okay, we got another mourning month and weeping and fasting coming along. 70 years stuck in a cycle of weeping and mourning over the past. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Does that ever happened to us? Year after year. And, and what I love about this, look at what God says. Look at the text. He doesn't just say, yeah, you don't need to fast anymore. I'm, I've eliminated that. No. These fasts will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts. Do you see the transformation? He's not just gonna neutralize the fast and say, oh, you don't have to do that anymore. He's going to transform them into feasts. And I'm telling you, this is what God wants to do in our lives. These things that cause us pain and mourning and suffering, these chains that we have and we regularly are going through these cycles, he wants to deliver us from that and not just remove the chains but to melt them down and make them into something else, something beautiful. Maybe, maybe, like you ever watch Forged in Fire about the blacksmithing show where they take all this iron and metal and melt it down and they make edged weapons, you know, <laughs> out of like a rusty spring from a car or a chain. That's what God's saying. I'm going to transform this morning into dancing. I'm not just gonna neutralize it, I'm gonna transform it, that's the opportunity. But it all comes back to the relationship. Not going through ceremony or religious habit, but having an authentic love relationship. And I think that that's the thermometer. Is my love for Jesus Christ growing? Can I see it growing? If I don't, there's something wrong. It needs to be growing. It needs to be healthy. It needs to be fed. It needs to be nurtured. I need to spend time with him. I need to listen to him. I need to talk with him just like I talk with my family or my friends. I need to have that connection with him and that feeds everything. And the ministry that comes out of that is good. This community, I wanna tell you, is an essential part of this process in every one of our lives. These people around here are people that you can go to for help, for prayer. I've done that. Within the last two weeks, I've talked to two different people for prayer, for help on something. That's what community is for. That's what we are about. We're not a bunch of people that are pretending to be righteous or perfect. We're a bunch of people who need Jesus Christ, want to have a love relationship with him and need each other. That's what this is about. We have a prayer team. Do you use the prayer team? Come to them anytime they're available throughout the service, other times, if you need prayer. So that's what we're doing. That's what God wants to do is to transform those broken areas of our lives into something good, something that he blesses and that he's able to use. Let me pray. Lord, we um, are humbled before your word today. We Thank you for how, as we look at the way that you worked in others' people's lives, that we can learn how you wor- can work in ours. Give us the faith and the courage and the desire to keep pursuing an authentic love relationship with you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.